0: Good evening church family. I greet you in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining me for this sixth session of Women of the Bible Speak. We're going to be looking at Esther and Rahab this evening so let me open up with a word of prayer and we will get right to it okay let me pray Heavenly Father in the name of Jesus Lord we pray certainly your spirit uh, into this study into this sixth session of Women of the Bible Speak Lord it has been a, a great joy Reading this book and sharing this book, Lord, I, I pray that those who are watching, Lord, will uh, receive it for what it is, Lord—a a blessing, Lord, and, and a and a gift from a believer to. A believer, Lord. So we're we're thankful for those who uh, have deep faith and who take the the time, the effort, the the energy, Lord, in, in writing a book like this. So we're we're very thankful, Lord, to uh, Shannon Brain, Lord. She is a she is a, a fellow believer, Lord, and, and we're uh, blessed by uh, this offering that she gives to us. So, uh, anoint uh, this time, Lord, and we ask it in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Okay, Esther and Rahab, Unexpected Heroes of Faith, this uh, chapter is called. so. Uh, here's here's basically the the biblical reference. Uh, it is the entire book of Esther. Okay, so let me uh, let me just uh, offer that uh, to you. We're, we're going to be highlighting several of uh, of the scriptures in that book, uh, but but Shannon says refer to the to the entire book. And as a matter of fact. Uh, read it reread it to to get uh familiar with it so uh <clears throat> just a, a precursor this uh this chapter is heavy on content there's a lot there she's such a good writer that that I feel like I literally um it's one of those rare times where I feel like I want to read the entire book uh to you but I know. <laughs> I know for the sake of time that's that's not possible, but there's a lot uh to uh to this chapter. So if you would bear bear with me. Let me get right to it here. Of all the women we meet in this study, Esther is maybe the most unusual. She was the only one who was a queen for one thing. Here is also the only story that takes place entirely outside the land of Israel. While Ruth's journey began in Moab, her passage to Israel, both literally and spiritually, was at the heart of her story. But Esther lived only in Persia, along with her entire community. The rest of the Jews who had been captive... And who also remain there. So, in reading her story, we get a sense of entering a world apart. And that sense of distance from Israel, from her Jewish community, and even at times it seemed from God. This is a big part of how Esther's adventure unfolds. Now, our first clue about Esther comes in her name, which wasn't even Jewish. Some scholars believe it's a variation on Ishtar, the name of the Babylonian fertility goddess, and a popular female name in Babylon and Persia. Or simply that it means star. Either way, Esther wasn't a Jewish name. But Esther did have one of those as well. Hadisha, meaning myrtle tree. In her everyday life, her pagan name would have been used as the one that she offered up or used, and it revealed to us and the Jewish community that has been uprooted, not just from the land of Israel in its exile, but also from their own concept of themselves as God's chosen people. Now many years before, a remnant of them had returned from exile to Israel, led by Ezra and Nehemiah. But Esther's family was among the Jews who stayed behind and assimilated into the Persian culture. After 70 years in Babylon, then under the rule of Persia, they established homes and families, becoming comfortable and complacent with a very different way of life. Jews like Esther would probably have known nothing of the life back in Judea. So Esther's story, her life, is also the only story that takes place entirely in a city, and not just any city, but Susa, the great Persian capital. Let me move down here um, to uh, some other content that I think would would be helpful to the context here. When Babylon fell to the Persians, captive communities moved into Persian lands as well. This migration of Jews from Israel to Babylon and then to Persia and beyond is known as the Diaspora or Diaspora the great scattering of Jewish people throughout the ancient Near East and beyond. This was Esther's world, a sphere where no one she knew had likely been to Israel or even spoken Hebrew fluently. It's possible that Esther herself didn't even know any Hebrew. The Jewish community retained a distinct identity, though but it may have been primarily just an ethnic one. We also don't know the state of Esther's religious education. We do know that not once does she utter the name of God in this entire story. The emperor of Persia, King Xerxes, gave a great feast and summoned his wife, Queen Vashti, to appear before all of the nobles, wishing to display her beauty. Now getting into the the meat and potatoes, if you will, of our text. He wanted to show her off. So when she refused to come, the king's rage, of course, was ignited. And he divorced her on the spot. From the very beginning of the story, the king's absolute authority is clear. If he summoned you and you refused to appear, or if you showed up uninvited, you were in big trouble. Both actions were considered exceedingly disrespectful to a monarch, and insulting the king meant banishment or even death. Now, in order to choose a new queen the king decided to hold a kind of beauty contest and select a new mate from among the most desirable young women in the land. Drafted into this pageant, this would not have been the sort of invitation you refused. Esther quickly became the favorite. Mordecai had specifically instructed her not to reveal her nationality or family background. So, this beautiful Jewish woman became the Queen of Persia, living in a palace surrounded by strangers, and cut off even from her only family. Now that's the short and sweet Sunday school version, Shannon says, but this book of the Bible gives us a much more detailed picture about how Esther went from orphan to queen. Now, let me refer to some text here. Esther chapter 2, verses 12 through 14 says this Before a young woman's turn came to go uh, into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. Then she would go to the king. In the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, return to another part of the harem to the care of, bear with me here, Shashagats, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. This was the arrangement. And we never really learn how Esther felt about it. From Xerxes' point of view, the whole process had no downside. If he found a woman suitable to be queen, great. If he didn't, well, he had a stable of concubines. He could flip through and choose a different one every night, the way you or I might choose a movie to watch. He held the power, the king did. But God had miraculous plans for Esther. There was something about her that was different. And Xerxes chose her as queen. Let me give you some more biblical reference here. Esther two seventeen and 18. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any other of the women. And she won his favor and approval more than any other of the virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all of his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. This is exactly where a good novel should end. The beautiful young heroine has achieved the pinnacle of earthly glory and has triumphed. But this is not the end of Esther's story. Instead, it's really just the beginning. Because this is a story about heavenly glory and not one of earthly glory, she points out. It's a story about God's love for his people. And about the courage this young woman found the moment she was most needed. The big royal wedding? Well, that's just a blip. It's only setting the stage for the real drama yet to come. And lurking behind all that is the darker story of the struggle between Haman, the king's help, and Esther's cousin Mordecai. Safe to say Haman had a healthy ego, and he was furious that Mordecai refused to recognize his exalted position and to even bend the knee to him, Let me give you some biblical reference here. Esther 3, verse 3 through 6. Listen to this. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So, when Mordecai heard what amounted to a death sentence for his people. He began grieving, and doing it so publicly. Word got back to the Queen, and she was in great distress. That comes from Esther 44. She sent clothes to the man who had taken her into his home as an orphan, but he refused them. She sent one to or, or one of her royal attendants to find out why he was so troubled, and Mordecai sent back a message with all of the chilling details. He also included a desperate request to, in quotes, go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Esther 4, eight. How did she respond in that moment? She didn't say, don't worry, I've got this all handled. She answered in a way that reminds us of Moses saying, please send someone else. As many of us do when confronted with seemingly insurmountable obstacles, she explained why she couldn't possibly be the one to carry out the task. As Mordecai was likely well aware, she couldn't simply show up and ask the king for help. She couldn't appear before him at all, unless he called for her. Anyone who showed up uninvited could, in fact, be put to death. Mordecai was asking her to be willing to risk her own life in order to save, likely, thousands of others. His response to her apprehension was both inspirational and blunt. Esther 4 Verses 12-14. through 14. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all of the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this, So again and again in the Bible, we see the effectiveness of collective prayer and the power of the people of Israel when they stood united. When God delivered His law on Mount Sinai, it was to all the people of Israel. In one voice they answered, We will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. That's Exodus 24-7. The unity of God's people then is a heritage we as Christians enjoy today. At our moments of greatest spiritual crisis, we can reach out to our brothers and sisters, maybe strangers by the world's standards, and find an immediate connection. How many times have you heard of someone in need and prayed for them, knowing you'd probably never meet them on this side of heaven? That's the kind of power Esther was asking her people to rally around. So Esther asked her fellow Jews to join together in seeking divine wisdom and favor, relying on Mordecai to rally the people. And she uttered her famous words here, Esther 4:16b. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. If I perish, she said, I perish. With this foundation laid, Esther gathered her courage, went to the king, and in God's goodness we see zero hesitation from Xerxes. He extends his golden scepter to her, and Esther is allowed to approach. The king was gracious to her, clearly eager to hear her request. He promised her anything she wanted, even up to half of his entire kingdom. So the Bible tells us that Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. That's Esther 5, 9. But his mood quickly soured when he saw Mordecai, who refused to bow to him. By the time he got home, Haman was once again focused on topic number one, himself. Now what Haman couldn't know is yet another miraculous moment God scripted into this powerful story. You see, that night the king couldn't sleep. He asked for a book of records to be brought before him. In the pages he discovered that Mordecai had once overheard a plot to kill the king and warned the king's officials in advance, likely saving the king's life. When he asked what honor or reward the man had been given, the king was informed that nothing had been done in gratitude to Mordecai. That's just about the time Haman showed up to ask the king to hang the man. Instead, the king asked Haman how he could best honor a man publicly. Certain that the king was referring to him, Haman outlined a scenario involving royal robes and a fancy horse with a prince parading through the city, yelling, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. That comes from Esther 6-9. And that's exactly what Haman got the king to do for Mordecai. Imagine Haman's fury. He returned home despondent. But it was time to return to the second banquet with the king and queen. It was during this elaborate feast that the king again asked the queen what she desired and again offered up half of his kingdom. The time had come and she laid it all on the line. Then queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is this man who dared to do such a thing? Esther says in chapter 7, 3 through 6, An adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. This was game over for Haman. He was dragged off stage, kicking and screaming and hanged from the gallows he himself had ordered built for Mordecai. To top it off, the king gave Haman an estate to Esther and his priceless, powerful signet ring to Mordecai. But the Jewish people were not yet safe. The king could not un do his decree, opening the Jews up to slaughter. So he allowed Esther and Mordecai to draft a new directive. This one giving the Jewish people every right to assemble and protect themselves. To go after any enemy who came after them. Now it is truly amazing to watch how God took Esther from orphan to queen and all for the purpose of saving the Jewish people. She didn't have to strive or scheme. He directed her path, every twist and turn, knowing what one day would be asked of her. Often, we're eager to know the path ahead, how something is going to turn out, or to even be resolved. God knows when we're ready, and in His perfect timing He turns the pages of our stories. What if Esther had known what she would one day be called upon to do? Would she have tried to to avoid that first step to the palace altogether, feeling weak or ill-equipped, or simply afraid of the enormous challenge ahead? Well, God gave her the tools to be a queen who served him. And while his name is never mentioned in the book of Esther, we see his handiwork all through this miraculous story. We cannot know when he will call us to a task that fills beyond our human limits. But Esther's story is the perfect illustration of how he equips us all along the path that leads us To those moments. So nothing is without purpose in God's hands. Esther's story reminds us that God was always working and guiding his people, a perfect foreshadowing of the salvation that would one day come through his son. Okay, church, we're going to make a transition now to uh, the biblical character Rahab, and I want to give you some a text that uh, kind of brings us into her story this evening. Let me first mention Joshua, the book of Joshua, chapter 2, verses 1 through 24. And chapter 6, verse 25. Okay, let's go to the book of Hebrews now. Chapter 11, verse 31. And then the book of James, chapter 2, verse 25. Okay. Esther and Rahab make an unlikely pair. One was a queen, the other a prostitute. They lived some 700 years apart. Esther, during the time of the exile in Babylon and Persia, after Israel had essentially been destroyed, and Rahab at the very beginning of Israel's founding as a nation, when Joshua and his troops were starting to lay plans to take Canaan, in fact, Rahab is the reason that Joshua's army was able to make its very first conquest the city of Jericho. So you could say she played an essential role in Israel's later glory and prosperity. Like Esther's, Rahab's name points us to some important truths about her. In Hebrew, and in most of the local Semitic languages, her name is Rachav, meaning he enlarges or he widens. It was a common image of fruitfulness. God enlarging the womb of a pregnant woman, woman thickening the ear of grain, making the fruit to swell and even burst. And in Rahab's case, the name has another meaning, to enlarge a land area. Because of her bravery at a critical moment, that's exactly what she helped Israel to do. And that was, in fact, just the beginning. Rahab the prostitute is one of the ancestors of Christ himself. And we'll we'll unpack that here. She married Solomon of the tribe of Judah and gave birth to Boaz, the same Boaz who would go on to marry Ruth, the great-grandmother of King David, which puts Rahab directly in the lineage of Christ himself. Just like Esther, Rahab changed the world with one bold, decisive act. Now we meet her in Joshua chapter 2. After some spies from Israel show up at her front door, after 40 long years of wandering in the desert without any permanent home, the people of Israel had finally made their way into Canaan. They had become a nomadic people, but they longed for a home. They had lost Moses, and Joshua was was their new leader. He would be tasked with taking a band of dispirited nomads and turning them into an army capable of fighting against the trained legions and fortified cities of Canaan. To the human eye, it probably looked like a hopeless mission. The Israelites couldn't match those ancient sophisticated, well-supplied cities in weaponry or numbers. But after the death of Moses, Joshua had heard directly from God a powerful directive full of bold promises. Let me give you some scripture here. Joshua 1 verses 2 through 6, and I'll read it. You and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river Now, a a bit about the location in which this story takes place. Local inns were clearing houses for gossip. No surprise there. And it would have been a good idea for Joshua's spies to head to one first. Not just to secure lodging for the night, but also to overhear the local news and find out what was going on in town. Unfortunately, news flowed in both directions. The king of Jericho got word that some strangers were in town over at Rahab's place and maybe asking too many questions. So he sent his messengers and demanded Rahab turn over these guests. Now here's where Rahab made the decision that changed the course not only of her own life, but of the entire trajectory of human history. She decided to lie in order to protect her guests. But it wasn't just any lie. It was a detailed one. She admitted that the men had stopped in, but told the king's messengers, you just missed them. Rahab really sold it. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. That's from Joshua 2.5. But she had already hidden the spies on her roof. After sending the king's messengers on a wild goose chase, she returned to the roof for an illuminating chat. Before we go there, we have to ask the pressing question, Shannon says. Why did Rahab go to all of this trouble? Why did she make an, uh, an appearance there? Uh, why did she make an impulsive choice? Why did she lie to the soldiers of her own king? Why did she put herself out there, make herself vulnerable and her entire family at such a tremendous risk? If the king's men had discovered that discovered that Ahab lied or Rahab lied, her life would almost certainly have been in danger. Whatever due process there was in ancient Canaanite city like she was living in ruled by a despotic king it's unlikely a prostitute innkeeper would have in fact benefited. There's simply no denying that Rahab took an unbelievable chance here. In explaining her decision to save them Rahab told the men all she had heard of Israel and what a picture she painted word of god's favor over israel had spread far and wide through those powerful accounts god's miracles were paving the way for his people let me read from uh, from joshua 2 verses 9 through 11. I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and when you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. So, She struck a deal with Joshua's men. In exchange for the help and shelter she offered, they would spare her life and the lives of her family. Knowing what she knew of their mighty God, there was no way she'd even consider turning the spies over to Jericho's king. Rahab knew their God was real and had the power to save her loved ones. Like Rahab, We have all had an experience and a moment when we fully understand the reality of God and His power to redeem us. It's the gift of faith, a gift Rahab was clearly given. Let me read some more scripture here. Joshua 6.25 says this, But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. Both Esther and Rahab made bold decisions to place themselves at risk for the sake of Of God's people. For Esther, a thoroughly assimilated young Jewish woman who largely hid who she was, revealing her identity and standing on behalf of God's people could have cost her absolutely everything. And yet, she found the courage. Rahab did much the same thing for a people who were not yet even. Her own people. At times, both Esther and Rahab may have felt disconnected from the people of Israel. But the women's decision to place their own lives on the line made them key players at a critical point in the nation's survival. For Esther, this meant being celebrated as the great who redeemed all of the Jews from death and destruction. Now for Rahab, it meant being adopted as one of God's own and becoming part of the bloodline of the royal family, part of the bloodline of Jesus Christ himself. As one of only three women mentioned in Matthew's genealogy of Christ, Rahab was clearly important to early Christians. In fact, she is mentioned two more times in the New Testament. Once in Hebrews and once in James. With each mention commending her faith and bravery. Let me read from James 2, 25 and 26 here. In the same way, it was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Rahab's faith was just a starting point, as it is for us as Christians today. When presented with the chance to breathe life into our own faith, will we respond as she did? Will we, like Rahab, understand that our faith must move beyond intellectual agreement, and into action. We will all face those critical decisions. In John 16, 33, Jesus himself warns his disciples, saying this, In this world you will have trouble. Yet his very next words were, Take heart, bookended by his unavoidable truth. I have overcome the world. May that assurance be all we need when our Esther or Rahab moments arrive. So, good study there. Uh, we <clears throat> we will include our um, Esther and Rahab study questions along uh, with uh, with the email as well, so you can. Take a look-see at that. Um, For next week, we're going to be looking at uh, Mary and Martha of Bethany. Two pathways, it's called. So, look forward to that. Uh, I hope that you have um, been blessed by this evening's study. Uh it uh, it is a good one and there are certain certainly some great uh lessons for uh us all here. So uh, I want to uh just take this moment and thank uh Rachel Stoneman for her commitment in recording and editing uh this study. A big thank you uh to her and if you see her, thank her. Uh, as well. Let me close with a, with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord, uh, the wisdom of 16 women and their life lessons for us today uh, are still speaking to us. Lord, I, I pray that we give ear lord to what they are saying to us today we're thankful lord for your word that is eternal lord that has truth there for uh, uh, a world a a culture lord filled uh, with so much so much false information lord i pray that we seek lord the truth that is everlasting that is your word Lord, our word, may we receive it and be blessed by it. We ask this in Jesus' holy and blessed name we pray. Amen. Folks, have a wonderful evening, and I will see you next week. God bless you.